we're doing. And uh, we're going to go through the book of James together. And our creative team has come up with a, a hip, cool title for it. It's called The Book of James. <laughs> it's going to be great stuff. If I asked you to name, those of you who've been around church or scripture for a while, if I asked you to name your favorite book in the Bible, chances are that a good percentage of you would say the book of James. And James is certainly one of my favorites. It's definitely in my top five of all the books in the Bible. It's actually the very first book of the Bible that I studied seriously, and I have the markings in my Bible to prove that. Maybe you're asking, well, why James and, and why now? And those are good questions. Got to thinking about it. We've spent a lot of time these la last few years deepening our understanding and grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And especially its central role in our faith as Christians. Well, what James is going to do now for us is he's going to help us see how centering our lives in the gospel plays out in our daily lives, at work, in the home, in our relationships, as we deal with things. And if you've ever read or studied James, you know that's the truth. Now, I know some of you have studied James before. And maybe you're thinking thoughts like this. I already know James. I've got this down. This is just going to be review for me. I probably am not going to learn anything. But I want to challenge you. I've studied all the way through James four times in my life, and one of those was in the original language in the Greek. But I've got to tell you, in studying it now for this series this fall, I've been learning new things. And I, I believe you will as well. There's been some new scholarship in recent years regarding this book, and it's given me uh, whole new things to think about, whole new di dimensions of truth to ponder. And so I just believe there's more. There's more in there for you to discover, and uh, I hope you'll fully engage with this. So let's let the James journey begin. If you haven't pulled the, the study guide out of your worship folder yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, today's going to be kind of an introduction and overview to this letter in order to kind of set the stage for the remaining weeks. So let's go uh, in our Bibles or on your device to James 1 and see how the letter opens. James 1, verse 1. Here's, here's how it goes. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And that's all the farther we're going to get today. One verse. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's begin by kind of stepping back a little bit and asking a couple of questions about this, okay? So first off, the, the, the authorship question, who wrote James? The answer? James, absolutely. But which James? James Brown, James Dean, James Green, James Madison. No, none of those James. How many of you know there are, there are lots of James in the Bible? Did you know that? And surnames weren't as popular back then, so we have to find other ways to distinguish between them. There was uh, James, the father of Judas, James, the son of Alphaeus, James and John, James, the son of Zebedee. Remember James and John, the, the sons of thunder? And then there was this James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So you probably know that, that Mary and Joseph went on to have children after Jesus, and uh, James was one of them. He's often referred to as James the Just or James the Righteous or James of Jerusalem. And we'll come to understand why in just a few moments. Some things about him that we know. As I said, Galatians 1.19 refers to him as the brother of the Lord. Half-brother, technically, right? 
half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Early on, he was not a believer. I mean, imagine living in the household with Jesus, you know, he he wasn't a believer, but it's very special to note that after Jesus rose from the dead, he made a special appearance to his brother James. So it, apparently it was at that time that James became a believer. I mean, if your brother is crucified and dies and then comes back and talks to you, that's bound to shake you up a little bit. So he did become a believer. He was one of those uh, mentioned as being in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Um, he evidently became the lead pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. That first, excuse me, first church, he's referred to as a pillar of that church. He led the famous Jerusalem Council, which took place in the late 40s AD. And he had a nickname. Now, I don't know if you would consider this a complimentary nickname, but his nickname was Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Well, how would you take it if someone called you Camel Knees? Well, I think it may, he may have viewed it as complimentary because it referred to the fact that he was a man of prayer. And he was known to be such a man of prayer and spent so much time on his knees that he developed thick, cam- uh, thick calluses on his knees. Thus, camel knees. So, not a bad thing to be known for. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that this James was um, martyred for his faith. In about 62 AD, he gave up his life for his belief in Christ. And note how he referred to himself here. James, what does it say? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's significant, because think about what he could have said, opening this letter. James, the brother of the Lord. Sit down, shut up, and listen up to what I have to say, you know. Or he could have said, James, the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. Or James, the head honcho of this new Christian movement. Or James, the great prayer warrior with the calloused knees is writing to you today. He could have even written James, the servant of God. Kind of setting himself apart, but he didn't. He used a very humble term to describe himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who know the original language, know that word servant, is doulos, bond slave. It refers to somebody who is owned. They don't own themselves. They belong to someone else. They are totally subservient to them. And, of course, the master that James was now serving was none other than his older brother, Jesus. Now, think about the dynamics growing up in that home. Remember, he grew up with Jesus, The golden child, I mean, if there ever was a golden child, right? Imagine having, you know, this brother who never did anything wrong and who always did everything right. (laughs) Don't you think James might have resented him a little bit? Hey, James, why can't you be more like your brother? Well, he's perfect, you know, I mean, kind of a high bar there. So the scriptures say his, uh, Jesus had at least five brothers, at least two sisters, and they didn't believe in him. And most likely they resented him. But I got to thinking about this conversely. Think about being Jesus with all of these brothers and sisters who didn't understand him and probably resented him. And because he was different, right? What would that have been like to have been our Lord in that situation? Well, thankfully, James did eventually come to faith and he ended up penning this letter that's going to be such a blessing, I believe, to this church. Well, who are the recipients? To whom was he writing? He says, 
I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This letter was not written to a, a specific church or a particular individual, like some of the other letters of the New Testament, but it was meant to be read by a number of congregations. It was kind of called a circular letter that would have uh, made the rounds, and because of that, it's included as one of uh, what are called the general epistles. The fact that he uses the term 12 tribes tells us what? He's writing to Jewish people, Messianic Jews, Jewish people who had come to believe that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, and he says it's the 12 tribes of the dispersion, and maybe you know this, but uh, great persecution broke out, Acts 8.1 tells us, and the, those early believers were scattered, or dispersed, that's the word, and so he's writing to these various congregations of Messianic Jews scattered throughout that region, and as a result, we're going to see there's a lot of Jewishness in James, and it's really fascinating uh, to see. Well, let's ask this, ask this. What's the theme? What's the, what's the overarching theme of the book of James? And there's a lot of disagreement about whether there even is a single unifying theme to this letter. I align with those who believe that James does have an overarching theme, despite the fact that James, as we'll see, addresses a lot of different topics and subjects. As we read the letter, let's remember that James was a pastor. How many of you like pastors? All right, about a third of you. <laughs> Great. We'll pray for the rest of you, okay? He's a pastor. He's a spiritual shepherd, and, and pastors care about the Word of God, and they care about people. And they're trying to bring those two together. And James cared about his readers, and he cared about their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. And apparently, James had gotten wind that there were some of these messianic Jewish people who were claiming to believe in Jesus, yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's my Savior, he's my Messiah, but whose lifestyle wasn't reflecting that very much. And that would be problematic enough, but the implication is that these folks felt that it really didn't matter how they lived and what choices they made and what decisions they made since they were saved by grace through faith and not by works. And it's true that in the New Testament, we find a lot of teaching about grace. And those of you who have been around New Life, you know I'm a grace guy. I'm into the grace plan, right? Not the performance plan. And we know that uh, Paul, the apostle, especially a writer of the scriptures, was especially known for teaching grace. And particularly as grace is expressed in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from our good works, right? We know that. But here's the thing, in that day, just as in the present time, there were some people who were looking for loopholes. <laughs> they were eager to misinterpret the things that Paul taught about grace. They contended that Paul was giving Christians a license to sin. Hey, the great apostle says that justification before God is by faith alone, through grace, Apart from my works, and I'm saved, I've trusted in Jesus. And so it really doesn't matter how I live my life because it's all forgiven already, right? Yes, now I can do whatever I want to do. You know, there's a number of scholars who believe that James, here in this letter, was countering that very thinking, which we know 
was not Paul's teaching, but a perversion of Paul's teaching. In fact, Paul himself anticipated that people would respond that way to his doctrine of grace. If you know Romans chapter 6, where he wrote, you know, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, no, no way. I heard about one Bible professor who had a student who came up one day after class and he presented his professor with this kind of reasoning. He said, hey, prof, I'm saved. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I love my freedom. I can go live however I want, right? And the very wise professor responded like this. He said, well, yes, yes, that's right. Now that Jesus has set you free from sin and seated you in heavenly places and given you a new heart that beats in sync with his and placed his Holy Spirit in you to direct your life and give you new desires for love and holiness, by all means, go out and do whatever you want. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Well, in his letter, James wants his readers to get a very, very important truth. And if you don't get anything else today, get this. Yes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. You might want to write that down. That's kind of memorable. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves, saving faith, genuine faith, is never alone. It is true, good works are not the basis of our salvation in Christ. Listen, but they are the evidence of it. They are the proof that your faith is genuine. I mean, we all know anyone can say, I'm a Christian. I mean, anyone can talk, right? Oh, yeah, I know the Lord. I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. I have a Bible at home. I go to church. But James is going to ask this in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Is that saving faith? Verse 18, he goes on to say, I will show you my faith by my works. Make sense? Very important to understand. Scripture is very clear that a person's claim of salvation, oh yeah, I'm saved, will either be verified by their lifestyle or invalidated by their lifestyle. See, God gives every truly redeemed, saved person, every redeemed child of His, a new heart and a new residence, the Holy Spirit who produces new desires to live pure, to live holy, and to love other people. Listen, if it's real, it's going to show. It has to. It's the nature of of true saving faith. Bible writers were not averse at all to challenging people to examine their hearts and lives for evidence that their faith was true. I think of Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he said, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Peter, along the same lines, wrote, Be diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Jesus said, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. I don't know if you knew this. There's an entire book of the New Testament, 1 John, basically written to be a series of tests to be applied to our lives to help us discern whether or not we 
are truly born-again people, truly children of God. And so here in this letter, Pastor James has this same concern. He wants his readers to know if they're true believers or not, if they really possess genuine faith. If they do, he wants them to experience that wonderful inner assurance in their hearts. Yes, I'm saved. I know it. I'm 100% sure that I belong to Christ. But if they're not, he wants them to repent and put their full faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for their sins and then follow hard after Christ. So I believe there is an overarching theme in this letter, and, and I believe it's this. Real faith works. Would you say that with me? Real faith works. One more time. Real faith works. It acts. And so James agrees with Paul and Peter and John and James. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Of course, there's going to be starts and stops, hiccups along the way, three steps forward, two steps back. We've experienced this, right? Progress and setbacks. But listen, the general trajectory of a true believer's life is towards loving God more and towards loving people more, as Jay said last week in his sermon. Faith will result in fruit, in, in loving deeds. It has to because real faith works. We're going to explore this more. Well, let me mention some distinctives of this particular book of the Bible, of James. First, it's probably the earliest letter written in the New Testament, written in the mid-40s, not 1940s, but 40s, probably around 45. It's possibly written before he had ever met Paul face-to-face, and that might explain some things. Second, it's very Jewish in its style, in its content, and um, you guys remember Henry Goulet, who was here a few weeks ago? I mean, Henry would be proud of us for recognizing this feature in James, the Jewish heritage of it. James was a Jew writing to fellow Messianic Jews who had all been raised and immersed in the religion of Judaism, but now they believe Jesus to be their Messiah. But that whole question of how much from their Judaistic religion should be brought forward now into their new Christian experience was, was a difficult question that those early Jewish Christians faced. Can you imagine? It was such an important issue that councils were called and leaders gathered together to grapple with this, this issue. For his part, James knew that Christians are not under the law, but thank God in Christ they are under grace, but he wasn't willing to just scrap everything Jewish and throw his Old Testament away. We're going to see many allusions in James to the Old Testament, to the Torah, and of course those would have been connection points for these Jewish readers. It's going to be fascinating, I think, for us to explore that more. The third distinctive is that this letter is very different from the other letters of the New Testament, especially from those written by Paul. Uh, the, the style, the content reads more like ancient wisdom literature. There are lots of direct linear commands. Sixty times James is going to say, do this, do this, do this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. It's also very intriguing to note what we don't find in James' letter. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit, no mention of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, no mention of his resurrection. 
Paul's great doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from good works, isn't seemingly isn't much evident in James. What we find instead is a very strong emphasis, as I've said, on works, deeds, actions, behavior. And that is what gave Martin Luther such heartburn about this very letter 15 centuries later when he came across James. And it sounded so different from Paul that it just bothered him. And, of course, that was the era of the Reformation, right, when, when Martin Luther was pushing back against the church, and, 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 and James just didn't fit. And, and so he, in his mind, relegated the book of James to a lower tier of Scripture. He didn't say it shouldn't be in the Bible. He just said, I, I see it as, as in a lower tier. But in my judgment, th- that tension is resolved by understanding that James and Paul had different reasons for writing, different purposes for writing. James' focus was not primarily on expounding Christian doctrine, which Paul loved to do. James assumes his readers understand basic Christian doctrine. His focus was on applying Christian ethics, how the truly Christian life is to be lived out day to day. How the gospel shows up on Monday, you could say. Yes, there are, we have to admit, there are some points of seeming contradiction with Paul's writings, but in my mind and in the minds of many, many others, they're they're not insurmountable obstacles. Resolution can be found, and we're going to see that as we move through the letter. Another distinctive is that um, in James, although... He only mentions his older brother Jesus by name twice. He actually alludes to Jesus' teachings many, many times. 35 or so times we see him allude to his brother's teaching. And Jesus' way of thinking flows all throughout this letter. In fact, scholars have noted how similar James is to certain passages of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So early on, even though James wasn't a believer, he was listening. He was listening to his brother. Here's an example. In uh, James 5, verse 12, James is going to write this. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Does that sound familiar? Echoes of his older brother, Jesus, who said the exact same thing recorded in Matthew 5, 37. And so one scholar says this. James gives us the very essence and spirit of his brother's teaching. He's right. In that same vein, we also find that James, like his brother, frequently uses illustrations from nature to explain spiritual truths. How many of you are nature lovers? You like the outdoors, being out in creation? Yeah. You would appreciate James. He talks about uh, the sun and the shadows. He talks about the waves of the sea. He talks about the heat of the sun. He talks about horses and animals and reptiles and a spark starting a forest fire and domesticated animals and uh, freshwater springs and saltwater springs and crops and rainstorms. We're going to see that James was certainly influenced by his older brother's penchant for using analogies from the world around him to explain spiritual truth, like we saw in John 15 with the vine and the branches. James does that a lot. And one other similarity, kind of fun for us anyway, James is the only one other than Jesus to use the term Gehenna. That's right, Gehenna, with an E. 
And many of you know that Gehenna uh, in that day was actually a trash dump. So outside the wall of Jerusalem, stay with me, (laughs) outside the wall of Jerusalem was the dump. And it's where they threw all their trash and then they burnt it. So it was constantly smoldering with flames. And Jesus used that smoldering trash heap outside Jerusalem to, as an analogy for hell. And often when Jesus used the term hell in his teachings, if you look at the Greek word, it's the word Gehenna. So he used it as an an analogy. That's Gehenna, hell. Gehenna is something totally different. (laughs) Gehenna, I am told, is translated from an old Indian word that means three into one because three streams come together here in Gehenna. So Gehenna is a picture of the Holy Trinity, three in one, not hell, okay? So what a difference one little letter can make. All right, so there you go. All right, some famous verses in James. Even if you don't have a background in the Bible or in Christianity, I'll bet you've heard some statements and phrases that are actually found in this book, like um, this one, count it all joy. You ever heard that? Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. That's in James. Or uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to everyone without reproach and it will be given to him. You ever heard that before? How about this one? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Some of you could use that advice in your life, right? It's in James. How about this one? Be doers of the word and not hearers only found in James. Faith without works is dead. You heard that? No man can tame the tongue. You do not have because you do not ask. How about this one? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's in James. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That wonderful promise is found in James 4. How about this one? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here's one we say around here quite a bit. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5.16. And then one that I was taught years ago and memorized, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Good stuff, huh? Famous, well-known statements, so many of them and more in James. If I was to outline this book, and that's always a challenge, I would start with that theme that we talked about, real faith works. And you could outline James like this, real faith, genuine faith works by responding rightly to trials, by responding rightly to temptation. That's going to be an interesting sermon because our children are going to be in here that week. We talk about that. So I'm scratching my head thinking, how am I going to, anyway, God will, God is faithful. Real faith works not, uh, not just hearing, but obeying the word. Real faith works, shows itself by caring for the marginalized people, the outcasts in our society, and by committing in ourselves to stay pure. Real faith works by treating others equally. Man, we're going to get into it in chapter 2. Be ready. Racial disharmony, prejudice, bigotry. James doesn't skirt that issue. He talks about it. 
Real faith works through acts of compassion and obedience. Real faith works through reining in the restless tongue, <laughs> watching our words, what we say. Because Jesus said what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the overflow of what's inside. You want to talk about that? Real faith works through living wisely, through choosing friendship with God over friendship with the world. It works through refusing to tear other people down. Don't you love how practical James is? Through trusting God's sovereignty over the future. James is the one who's going to say, look, you're making all these plans. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You better say, if God wills, we will do this and go there and do that. That's in James. Real faith works through fighting against injustice. We're going to talk about that, and he does in chapter 5. Those who are oppressed, those who can't speak up for themselves. Real faith patiently remains steadfast in the face of mistreatment and persecution and being unjustly treated. It works through prayer in every circumstance, and real faith works through going after, retrieving those brothers and sisters who have wandered away. So that's a way to outline this letter, and you can see there's a lot of good stuff. We're going to talk about a lot of really important things. Well, as I mentioned, James, James was a pastor, and he had a heart for the people, and particularly a deep desire that the people he was writing to experience everything that God had for them. And I want you to know that the pastoral desires of James are also things that our pastors here want for you. Things that we see in James, like, like number one, real faith. Real faith. James wanted his readers to, to grasp the nature of real faith so that they, they wouldn't be deceived. Twice he says, now don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You say, well, Deceived what? Well, deceived into thinking wrong thoughts about God. Deceived into thinking that God doesn't care how we live. Deceived into thinking that receiving God's grace means having a license to sin and sin up a storm. Deceived into thinking perhaps that you're a friend of God when maybe you're not. Deceived into thinking that you're on your way to heaven when maybe you're not. You know, I have this same desire for you. I want you to know that you know that you know that you know that you know that if you leave today and you get hit by a bus out here and you die, that you'd be 100% sure, I, I belong to Christ, I'm going to see him, I'm, 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 I have a home reserved in heaven. And I want you to know that. All of our pastors want you to have that kind of certainty and confidence. We walk through the book of James together. I want that his spirit would confirm in your heart what is your true spiritual condition. And if your lifestyle gives evidence that you are indeed a true believer in Christ, I want to rejoice with you over that. And if not, I deeply desire that you would see that clearly and that you would repent and that you would entrust your whole life to Jesus. Real faith. I share Pastor James' desire here. I also share his, a second desire of his for gospel community. We use that term around here. James wanted his readers to understand that 
that God wants his gospel to shape the life of the church, to form it. And you know how I like to talk. I say, well, you know, when God's people truly get the gospel down deep in their bones, it affects how they treat each other. It has to. Each other and also how we we view and treat those who are not yet part of the family of God, right? Let me give you a couple examples. When the gospel is forming our community together, we will not think that we are better than others. We will not feel all haughty and superior about, about our awesomeness. We won't, because we know this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We know that the gospel tells us that each and every one of us is more sinful than we ever would dare admit, and that we are more loved than we could ever dare imagine. That's the good news of the gospel. And when you get that, you'll stop looking down on others. You'll stop feeling superior. You won't have an us and them mentality. You know what else? You'll stop judging other people based on their appearance, based on how they look or how they dress, or based on their socioeconomic standing or their net worth. Why? Because the gospel tells us that only God is fit to judge people. Only he's in a position and has the vantage point and the knowledge to accurately judge them. God is the judge, James is going to remind us, and his standards have nothing to do with outward appearance or net worth or your bank account. The Bible says God looks at the heart. And so when we get the gospel, when it's shaping how we interact as a church, we're going to stop judging other people based on superficial things. congregation that's allowing the gospel to form its life is going to see expressions of grace, kindness, patience, generosity, acceptance, because that is how God has treated us in Christ. We love because he first loved us, right? And so like James, I want that too. I want that for you. I want that for us. He also had the concern that those who are struggling patiently endure until the coming of the Lord. Patient endurance. He encourages struggling brothers and sisters to take hope, to take heart, and to look forward to that day when they would lock eyes with Jesus Christ one day, no matter how hard it gets in this life. And I have that same concern for those of you who are having difficult times or walking through a hard season, and, and some of you are with health concerns, um, financial concerns, job concerns, family relationship concerns, ministry concerns, and difficult times. Oh, that you would grab hold of the hope of the gospel that we'll see Jesus one day. And when we grab onto that now, we can endure anything, anything, even with joy. I want that for us. James is also concerned that his readers keep making progress towards maturity. Have a, have a faith that's fully formed. There's a word, an interesting word. It appears often in James, kind of sprinkled throughout the letter. It's the word perfect. Let me give you a sampling. James 1.4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Get the idea of wholeness, health. James 2.22, speaking of Abraham, you see that 
faith was active along with his works and faith was completed. Same word, made perfect by his works. James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, his words, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Again, those of you who know the original language know that that word is the translation of the Greek word teleos. And teleos means fully formed, complete, whole, healthy, mature. James wanted his first century readers, those Messianic Jews, to know that it was God's intent to grow them into maturity, into wholeness. He desired that the gaps in their character would get filled in through the work of God in their lives, often through trials. He desired that the unhealthy, dysfunctional thought patterns and habits that were holdovers from the old life would be replaced by sound thinking and a lifestyle that is in alignment with the gospel. And you know what? I want that for you too. I truly do. I deeply desire that those of you who are new Christians, and there's a number of you who are new believers, I desire that you would grow in your faith. You know, getting saved is, is, I guess in a sense, it's the end of one kind of life, but it's really the beginning of a new walk, a new journey, right? And God wants you to make progress, to keep growing towards maturity. I desire that those of you who've been believers for many, many years, 20, 30, 40 years maybe, but you still have pockets of immaturity in your life, that you would grow as well and keep growing. I deeply desire that those of you who have stalled out in your walk, you know what I'm talking about? Stalled out. Man, I pray that Jesus would light a fire under you. Come on. There is no coasting in the Christian life. There isn't. I want God to shake you up. If you've been backsliding, coasting, dabbling around with sin, deep desire in the hearts of our pastoral team here that you would keep growing, keep making progress. Speaking of that, that's another concern of James. Call it full devotion to God. You know, it's in James where we find this term that you've heard, double-minded. He talks about being double-minded, being of two minds, and thus being unstable. And, And we know that condition comes as a result of what? Not being fully devoted to the Lord. You know, you know how it is. You want to keep one foot in the world, right? Because you kind of like, it's kind of tantalizing what's being offered to you over here. But you want to keep another foot in the church because you want to keep up appearances and you want people to think good of you. So you're kind of straddling two realms, two worlds. And James is basically going to cry out in chapter 4 and verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he writes, makes himself an enemy of God. Think about that. And, 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 and like James, I want for you, make a decision. Make a choice. Do you think James listened in to, to his brother at times? Remember when Jesus said, you, you can't serve God and money. You've got to make a choice. You can't truly kind of straddle two 
realms. Now, there's nothing about loving, nothing wrong with loving the people of the world. He's talking about loving the system, the system of the world that is geared to help people sin better and sin more and dethrone God and celebrate sin. And like his older brother James would say, God will have none of it. You're either a friend of God or a friend of the world. And oh, how I would want for you to make a choice. You know, the old preacher stood up and said, don't be a mugwump. That's where your mug's on one side of the fence and your wump is on the other, I guess. It's from Appalachia, I think. You don't want to be that. There's no joy there. That's miserable. That's miserable. James wanted his readers to decide who they will follow, who they will love supremely, and be all in. And oh, how I want that for you. And then finally, going after wanderers. Listen to the, listen to the last words of the letter. Listen to how James closes his letter. You hear his heart coming through here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins by not being forgiven. Man, isn't that good? Do you hear his heart? Like every pastor, James knows of people who have strayed away from God who have disengaged from the church, wandered away from the truth of Scripture and the call to holy living, disconnected themselves from other Christians and are just out there fending for for themselves. And James knows that's a dangerous place to be. You're easy prey for the devil. Easy prey for the devil. Isolated, alone. And James hurts for them. He hurts for them. You know why? Because he was there. He'd been there. He had that season in his life where he was far from God. And he knew where that path leads. And he's calling on God's people to go after those wanderers. To be like his brother who left the 99 behind to go after the one lost sheep. You know, I have that same desire for you. You know, some of you have been wandering. I mean, you're here in church today. That's, that's great. That's a great step. But the truth about you and your heart, you've been wandering away from God. Maybe, you're, maybe this summer, God was not even in your thoughts. Some of you are like the lady who one day, I just, I'm sitting at my desk and I felt prompted. I'd like this. You ever have that? It's like the Holy Spirit said, call this person. And I called her up and no kidding, here's what she said. Steve, I'm one of your wandering sheep. I need to be called back to the fold. I didn't say that. That was her words. And I said, well, I'm your shepherd. Come back. Come back. I had a guy between services in the cafe said, tears in his eyes, he said, "I thank you. I was that wanderer too. Some of you are like that. You've been wandering away from God. Come back. Come back to God. That's what grace is about, right? That God will have you if you humble your heart. He won't turn you away. Some of you maybe aren't wanderers yourselves, but you know a wanderer. You know what I'm talking about, right? That person. Didn't they? Man, they used to love Jesus. They used to love church. They used to love being in the fellowship. They used to read their Bible and pray. They maybe you were in a small group with them or served alongside them in a ministry, and and 
And it's they used to, they used to, they used to, but where are they? I mean, where are they now? And, and is anybody going after them? Not in a mean way, but, you know, calling them up, contacting them. Hey, man, hey, I just want to let you know, you've been on my mind lately. I'm not even sure why, but you've been on my mind, and I'm just wondering how you're doing. I, I, I haven't seen you much lately. Is there anything going on? How could I pray for you? Who knows how God might use a conversation like that? It might just save their soul from death, James says, and cover over a multitude of sins. They can be forgiven. Well, can you see that we're in for a great adventure together in the book of James? I mean, there is so much good stuff. I think we're going to grow through it. I hope that you'll commit to being here for every installment of our study of the book of James. I think to finish up today, what I'd like us to think about, what I'd like you to think about, the people in your life who've wandered away from God. Who've wandered away from God. Can you think of any? Siblings. I mean, James was a sibling of Jesus, and he had been away from God. Some of you have brothers and sisters who are far from God. Maybe they used to be close. Are you concerned about them? Some of you have prodigals, sons and daughters, who maybe at one time were close, but, but now they seem to be far from God. The things of God aren't on their mind very much. Maybe you have a friend who's deceived, you know. They, they say, oh, I'm a Christian. It's all good. We're good. And you're looking at their lifestyle, and you're thinking, dang, I'm just not seeing it. You're not judging them. You're just, I'm not seeing the evidence who are you concerned about today? Let's close with a time of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to think about that person that God's put on your heart right now. Just pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would move. Bring them back. Pray that God would send someone to kind of go after them and retrieve them. Maybe that's you. I'm praying that you would hear the voice of the Spirit in your heart like I did that day. Call that person. Text them. Go visit them. Ask them what's going on. Who are you concerned about today? Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for your servant, James. Thank you for this great letter. Lord, we do lift up to you the people we know who are far away from you because they've wandered. They used to be close, we thought, and but where are they now? Lord, may through this series we have ears to hear the Spirit telling us, instructing us, guiding us into their lives. And Lord, for wanderers here today in this room who've been far from you, oh, how I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a point of decision even right now do I want to be a friend of the world or do I want to be a friend of God? Give them the grace, Lord, to choose you over anything and everything else. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name.